The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. For the reading of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the book of John, chapter 7. We're going to begin, the, the chapters are broken up really oddly, and uh, you, you realize that the the Bible was not written with chapters and verses, right? Those were added later uh, to help us. So we're going to start in verse 53, and then we're going to read through chapter 8 and verse 11. And I just want to thank Bob and Zach. The Bible says, be ready in season and out. Uh, I had my message done pretty much on Monday. I was going to preach on the demoniac from, uh, from uh, I think, Luke's, Mark's gospel. And... I went to a conference this week, and while I was there, I just sensed the Lord calling me in a different direction. And so I got back late Thursday. On Friday, I had to work a little bit at my other job, but I was determined. I I kept going, man, I just want to preach the message I have. But the Lord, I feel like, just kept dealing with me. And so I I worked till late Friday night, worked till late Saturday night, and then um, got up this morning and still had prep to do. So when I was, I, I was literally just in the office printing out note sheets. Did we hand those out, by the way? Awesome. Uh, printing out note sheets, and I asked Bob, I said, hey, I need a minute. Anyway, you guys could sing anything, well, within reason. And so I'm, I'm glad they didn't come up and sing Led Zeppelin. <laughs> but, uh, no, I so appreciate them. So anyways, here we go. Let's pray. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? All right, thank you. God, wow, how I love your word and how I love the leading of your spirit. Father, I'm overwhelmed this morning by a sense of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross. Thank you today that Jesus is still risen. It's not just on Easter that we celebrate. Every Sunday, the reason we meet on the first day of the week is because that's when Christ arose. So may we be mindful today and every day of the implications of the resurrection, the hope that we have because of it. And today, may we have your peace. I pray right now that you would cultivate the hearts, cultivate the hearts of the people in this place, those watching online, that they may be receptive to your spirit and to your word and to the message that you've given me today. Lord, I've not had the prep time today that I normally have. I just ask for your anointing. With that, Father, you make preaching easy. Fill us all with your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 7 beginning in the second part of verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now when the law of Moses, now, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And, Jesus, and the woman said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. You may be seated. So last week, being Easter Sunday, we talked about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we focused on how the resurrection gives us hope, not only in the life to come, but the resurrection gives us hope in this life. That's a glorious truth, isn't it, for us? It is the means of our transformation. Because Jesus is raised, you and I can be transformed by faith in Jesus. Today, I want to hone in a little bit more on this transformation that takes place when you and I come to Christ. And namely, I want to talk about how the cross frees us from the burden of guilt. Beloved, that is a beautiful truth. So, as I mentioned, my son and I this last week went to a, a conference, the Gospel are together for the gospel in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and as if you needed me to say Kentucky. <laughs> um, but on the way up, I, I got an interesting phone call f from a friend. He told me that he has a co-worker who is not a Christian who often expresses his very um, liberal leftist views, particularly recently on the subjects of homosexuality and abortion. To which he gently shared his biblical positions. So the conversation became a bit heated. And my friend suggested to the man, you believe what you want and just let me hold to my values and beliefs. But that wasn't good enough for the co-worker. Maybe you've experienced something like this. He militantly argued his point and was appalled that my friend would not agree with him. So my friend called me and he asked me this question, why can't people, particularly secular people, with these views just respect what Christians believe? And, you know, it's not like we're trying to force our beliefs on them. Why can they not Allow us to hold to our beliefs. Friends, that's a good question. One that I want to explore today. 
So I, I began to ponder that question as we finished our drive to, to the conference. And by God's providence, the Lord is awesome. Do you know in the very first message of the conference, Dr. Kevin DeYoung shed light on that very question. Friends, that is the Lord. That is not coincidence. That is God's divine sovereignty and grace. So DeYoung talked about that not long ago, and you know this, the secular world held to this philosophy that we could call moral relativism. It's like, well, what is that? Moral relativism really boils down to this, that there is no absolute truth. So a secular person would say to a Christian, well, this is my truth, and they would believe that 100% it's true, and you have your truth. And so there's no absolute truth, and there are there's no absolute truth. And so there are many issues with that that I won't get into. But DeYoung suggested that times have changed. And now the philosophy of the secular world is absolutism. Meaning this. You know this. The secular world is no longer okay with us holding on to our Christian beliefs. Have you experienced this? If you're on social media, I know you've experienced it. They now demand that we adopt their beliefs or at least we remain silent about our beliefs. And so we are demonized because of our big biblical values and positions. And so the question becomes, why? Why do you need me to acquiesce to your beliefs and I believe that there is a very apparent reason, namely guilt. Friends, we live in a world racked with guilt. Why? Because all who are apart from Jesus stand guilty against a holy God. So the secular world... They don't understand why they feel guilty. We have the answer. But they feel this burden of guilt nonetheless. The non-Christian, here's what's so sad. The non-Christian, think about this. Why, why people feel guilty? Yes, because perhaps a sin is against the Lord. But let's just consider social media for a second. Do you know, you, you know this, that every single tragedy that occur, occurs in the world, such as poverty, disasters, violence, injustice, is brought to our attention. We know immediately, friends, that is a lot to bear. So with that comes a sense of guilt. It's like, I'm not doing enough. Man, I, I feel like I should be doing more. The secular world then, they attempt to deal with guilt via self-justification. Self-justification. Now, there's some evidence to back that up that I think will resonate with you. Number one, now, the idea of the victim mentality. 
Now, I don't want to discredit people that, who have truly suffered and are victims. There, there is across the world horrendous suffering. But have you noticed the agenda of politicians and professors and aristocrats? Think of it. What do they do? They want every group to feel victimized. And people buy into this. They love to play the victim card. Why? Because it's like, I might be able to ease my guilt if I can just blame what I do on my upbringing, on bad circumstances, or on people who have hurt me. It's kind of like the blame game. It's like I know that I have some bad behavior. I know that, that there are some things that I do wrongly. But listen, it's not my fault. It's like don't be so sure. <laughs> the victim mentality will never remove your guilt. And then there's absolutism. And here's again what that is. People chase self-justification by attempting to get everyone to approve of their views and behavior. Like what my friend experienced at work. They want us to remain silent. And if one person on the way that they are living, the guilt is not removed. Now, listen... People are looking for others to validate their bad choices. And can I just pause here for a minute and say, it's not just the secular world. I have people all the time come to me as a pastor. Throughout the years, they've done this, and they know they're doing something wrong. And it's like, they try to justify it by twisting the Bible. Do you know every heresy has a Bible verse behind it? Really? So people search through the Bible and, and they find this verse that, that might allow them to behave the way they do. And then it's like, Pastor, do you see this? And they want me to validate them. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to validate what the Bible is against. But there's this idea, if I can just put the blame on somebody else, then, if I can get everybody else to agree with me, then I can be absolved of my guilt. Listen to this. DeYoung said this, the secular world believes that guilt comes from the outside. And that they must look within themselves to deal with it. And you know this. It's the, the, the mantra of the secular age is the answer is within you, right? You just have to look deep down inside. So let me say this again to deal with it. But the Bible teaches that guilt comes from the inside and must be dealt with by looking outward, namely to Christ. Unbelievers have no means of dealing with guilt, and it eats 
them alive. Have you noticed how miserable people are? So how is it that you and I and the world can find relief from the heavy weight of guilt? I have three points. I'm going to try to answer that question. I'm going to look at, from our text, the test, the indictment, and the results. How do we find relief from the burden or the weight of guilt? Number one, the test. Just consider verses one through six. We just read them. I won't reread those verses. Jesus was teaching in the courtyard of the temple. It's a common practice. And many people were around him listening to his compelling words. People flocked to hear Jesus preach. And as he was teaching, the scribes and Pharisees interrupted him, bringing to him this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now remember, you know, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and Matthew talks a lot, writes a lot, about the scribes and Pharisees, that the scribes were the teachers of the law, the Pharisees were kind of the spiritual elites, everybody thought, wow, these guys are hyper-spiritual, and these men despised Jesus, why? Because he revealed their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness and their sin. So now look with me at verses, John chapter 8, verses 4 and 6. So the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Aren't you glad that we don't handle things like that in this church? It's like you're caught in the sin. We bring you before the church and be like, should we stone him? (laughs) Now, it's interesting here that the the Pharisees and the scribes referred to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. It's a very respectful title, but they used it in a very, as if they wanted his wisdom. As if they wanted the law to be carried out. Now, we know that the seventh commandment, you take the Ten Commandments, the seventh one forbids adultery, Exodus 7, 14. So the Pharisees were right that this woman was guilty of breaking God's commandment. But their concern here was not the law. Because verse 6 tells us their motive. They didn't want justice. They wanted to back Jesus into a corner. And here's the entrapment. They asked Jesus, what do we do about this? Well, if Jesus chose to overlook her sin, they would be able to charge him with disregarding God's law. Do you not care about the law of Moses? Leviticus 20, verse 10. Let me read this for you. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, you'll notice here the hypocrisy 
of the scribes and Pharisees. Because according to God's law, did you notice that both the adulterer and the, adult, the adulteress were to be stoned, were to be put to death? Where's the man? If they were caught in adultery, could they not have brought the man with them? It shows us that the men were really not concerned about following God's law so tediously. That wasn't the point of bringing this woman to Jesus. They wanted to back him in a corner that they might bring a charge against him. Now, you know, I want to pause here for a moment and and just address something because Many people, even many Christians, are puzzled when they read the Old Testament. I mean, you look at this like, you're caught in adultery, you're put to death. It's like, really? Is that mistranslated? Like, what is going on here? Well, it kind of messes with our view of a cute and cuddly God, doesn't it? R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul. I love what, is God loving? Absolutely. But I'll tell you this, he's a force to be reckoned with. I fear that we focus so much on the love of God, and we should talk about it because the love of God is glorious. He is love. But if we don't understand his wrath and his hatred of sin and disobedience to his word, we will take sin way too lightly. It's a scary picture. So, the Old Testament, when you, when you read of the heavy judgment that was carried out when people sinned, the Old Testament, it is painting a picture for us of the atrocity of sin. God does not just dislike sin. He hates it. That's the point of the Old Testament. So people often ask, how could a loving God judge sinners? But if you have a biblical view of sin, you'll understand that's the wrong question. What we should be asking is, how could a holy God acquit sinners? So the question, I want to repeat that again, is not how could could a loving God judge sinners? It is how could a holy God have mercy or acquit sinners? So here's the trap. If Jesus chose to overlook the woman's sin, he would be undermining God's law. On the other hand, hear this, if he chose to stone her, he would break Roman law. Because under Roman law, I talked about this a few weeks ago, Jews were able to adjudicate many of their issues within the temple courts. But capital punishment at this time was a sentence that could only be an issue. You don't have to be too keen on history to to know that. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to uh, to be seen as a threat to the Roman Empire so that they could just get rid of him. They wanted him dead. So the men in our text had come up with this elaborate plan to entrap Jesus, and here's what they saw the situation as. To them, for Jesus, it was a lose-lose situation. But I will tell you this this morning, you and I cannot outsmart Jesus. 
He is omniscient, all-knowing, and he is the personification of wisdom. So the charge against the woman is adultery. But the trap did not work. So let's look at the indictment, number two. Look at verses six through nine, if you would. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And there's been a lot of speculation about what he wrote. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, which tells me it's not too important. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus, how do you know that he considered what she did a sin? Well, verse 11, uh, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The implication being what you did is a sin. And as that old skit that I love to quote from Bob Newhart says, stop it. So it's clear that this verse, uh, in this verse, Jesus calls adultery what it was. It is sin. And you and I need to call uh, disobedience to God's word what it is. It is sin. And I just want to say, Jesus, as God the Father does and God the Holy Spirit does, takes sin seriously. He never says, oh, you know what? It's no big deal. He doesn't make light of sin. So the woman, here's what I want you to see, in one sense was indicted. She was guilty. Jesus didn't argue that. Uh, according to the law, she deserves to be stoned. But yet, Jesus offered her mercy, grace, forgiveness. I'm going to speak more on that in a moment. But here's what's inter interesting. The woman wasn't the only one who was guilty. Jesus exposed the guilt of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus knew the scribes and Pharisees' hearts. They might look hyper-spiritual or even perfect to the, to the rest of the crowd. But Jesus knows their hearts. And I, I would say that they know their hearts too because they all walked away when Jesus said, cast the first stone if you're without sin. They, and, and here's the sad part. They walked away still in their guilt. And so this begs the question, why did Jesus forgive the adulterer, the woman, and not the scribes and Pharisees? Well, as much as Jesus harps on the Pharisees, and, and we see that in the Gospels, it's not that he didn't care about them. It's God's will that all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that none perish, no, not one, the Scripture says. But I go back, uh, even though Jesus gave the Pharisees a hard time, he called them hip hypocrites, they were called in, in the Gospels a brood of vipers, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they're full of dead. They're, they're dead on the inside. 
So it's, but it's not that Jesus hates the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how do I know that? It's not that he rejected all the scribes and Pharisees. How do I know that? Because we just go back a little bit in John's gospel to John chapter 3, where Jesus welcomes a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again, which means Jesus is offering Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the gift of salvation. John 3.18 says this. Jesus said, whoever believes in me is not condemned. Whoever, scribe, Pharisee, prostitute, drug addict, in the name of the only Son of God, does not believe in me is condemned already. He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why did Jesus forgive the woman but not the Pharisee? Because the Pharisees were already condemned because of their disbelief in the Messiah. Think of the scribes, teachers of the law. And, and the Old Testament law that they taught, that the whole Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and they missed it. Well, then why would God forgive the woman? If the scribes are condemned already, why, why would Jesus forgive the woman? Verse 11, I think it gives us a hint to the answer to that question. She said, Jesus asked her, who stands here to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And I want to point out the word, Lord the word Lord. By her calling Jesus Lord, the implication is that she has received him, that she has, she may have just partial knowledge, but she believes Jesus is who he says he is, which means she had saving faith. Here's what I love about the woman. She owned her sin. She didn't play the victim card. She never denied it. It would have been easy for her to blame the man. He, you know, he was insistent on this. Or I was abused growing up. And I don't want to make light of that. But she stood still with heavy guilt before Jesus and clearly admitted to her sin. Yet because she trusted him, she experienced his grace and forgiveness. So let me just clarify something here. That forgiveness, salvation, is not universal. You know, there are many who think, even in the church, who, who I hear say things like this. Well, you know, I believe, you know, all, kind of all roads lead to God. Well, I just believe if people try nothing, that, that they will experience salvation. And it's like, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So the indictment is this. Both the religious leaders and the woman were pronounced guilty. But let's consider the results. 
the scribes and Pharisees, again, they walked away unchanged. They're not transformed by their encounter with Jesus. Do you remember all the miracles that we read about in the book of Matthew, chapters 8, or, or 7 and 8, 8 and 9, excuse me? Do you remember that? Everybody that encountered Jesus in faith, they were absolutely transformed, healed, delivered, set free from evil. But not the scribes and Pharisees here. They still carried the massive weight of guilt because they were guilty of sin against the holy God. And they walked away not depending on Christ for their salvation, but depending on their own self-righteousness and their own ability to keep the law, which no one can do perfectly, which means we're all sinners. And the Bible declares there are none righteous, no, not one. So the men went away still in their sin. But consider the woman. She experienced transformation. And that's what an encounter with Jesus should bring forth. The woman was transformed. I just want you to consider for a moment. Again, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but just imagine. Imagine you bring, being brought in, humiliated in front of the church. Now, the Bible says when someone sins against us, what do we do? We go to them one-on-one. -on -one. And if they repent, that's as far as it goes. And love covers a multitude of sins. If they don't listen to you, what do you do? If they don't repent, you bring two or three witnesses with you. The pastors or the elders of the church. If they don't repent, brother or sister in Christ, they don't repent, that sin is to be brought before the church, but still in a gracious way, not to condemn them, but it's out of kindness to help them see the seriousness of their sin, that they might be led to repentance. But just think, you're caught in the act of adultery, which is bad enough, and then you're drug in, you're, you're dragged in, into the temple in front of a crowd of people. Remember, there's a crowd of people around Jesus. He's sitting down teaching. The woman is brought, she's, she's brought in there before this whole crowd and before Jesus Christ. How would you feel? You're brought in here today and you are condemned by the scribes and the Pharisees or let's say for you, a group of pastors. She must have been humiliated, ashamed, full of guilt, hurt, broken. But after her encounter with Jesus, she walked away free of guilt, forgiven. The weight of that guilt removed. There's a word we call, it's a theological word, it's called justification. The woman walked away justified before God, even though she was a sinner. Here's what justification is. God demands righteousness. That means we are in perfect obedience to the law. We are completely righteous. Yet, the Bible says there are 
How many righteous? None. So justification is an act of God declaring somebody to be righteous even though he or she is a sinner. So this begs the question, how could God justify the woman or anyone else for that matter without compromising God's justice? Let me just read you a, a, a verse from Proverbs. This is Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Did you hear that? Jesus justified the woman, and yet Proverbs said, he who justifies the wicked are both alike, or is an abomination to the Lord. In a lighthearted way, you know, it's dangerous when parents threaten their children and don't carry out a punishment. And we have all done it. Let me just take you through a scenario. Your child's misbehaving, say it's your son, he's misbehaving, and you say this. I bet every one of us have done this. I'm going to count to three, and if you don't do it, you're going to be in trouble. And often, I've heard parents say things like this. It's like you're on the way to vacation, and the kids, if you're driving, you're brave if you do that, if you have young children. They're going throwing food everywhere, and you tell them, if you don't behave, I'm going to turn this car around and we will not go on vacation. And it's like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Now, I actually know somebody who did this, who followed through with this. Pretty amazing. The point is this. If you're going to threaten someone, anyone, or particularly a child, with the punishment, if they misbehave, it is normally a good thing when you agree to carry that out. Because if not, kids learn. Uh, you know, you wait till they're teenagers and you say, what? You're going to be grounded if you don't do your homework or if you don't make curfew. And they're like, yeah, right. So we need to teach our children to, that, that uh, you disobey mom and dad's law, you're going to receive the punishment that we've laid out. So the woman in the story broke God's law, and the punishment was death. But yet Jesus justified her. So the question again is, did Jesus commit an abomination? Well, if so, there's a massive problem <laughs> because that's sin. And the Bible says that he did not sin. He knew no sin. So <laughs> there's this idea, really popular, again, even in the church, where it's like, well, when God has a really good day, like he just wakes up feeling good, he'll go light on me, right? It's like, ah, you know what? He's a pretty good guy. God's looking down and like, I know he lied or he, he cheated or, or he, you know, fell into sexual sin or what have you. It's like, hi, but I'm feeling really generous today. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna forgive him. Let me say this. That's not the way it works. The God who does not change is equally merciful and just. Or you could say loving and just. Or you could say forgiving and just. 
So Jesus' actions towards the woman was certainly merciful. But what about justice? How could the woman be justified when she was clearly deserving of punishment? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus was about to go to Calvary and become her substitute, paying the penalty of her sin and every believer's sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember I said in order to be in right relationship with God, in order to have salvation, you and I, we've got to be righteous. But there are none righteous, and we can't work our way up to righteousness. But hallelujah to the Lamb of God. He has laid down his life. He has become our substitute. And because of that, he took our penalty upon himself. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus took the death that was owed to us. The wages of sin is God's wrath, but Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never be forsaken. Romans 4, 7 and 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count sin. There's no denial that we are sinners, but blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The burden of guilt and shame removed when we come to Christ in faith because we are justified by faith. Why are Christian sins not counted against them? Because by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Just as our sin was imputed to Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to us. So justification does not compromise the justice or the mercy of God because God's justice, hear me, give me three more minutes. God's justice was satisfied in Jesus Christ. We call this, and I'm sorry to use another theological phrase, but you need to know this stuff, and I'll explain it. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. What we mean is what I've been saying. At Calvary, Jesus was forsaken, so we don't have to be forsaken. He took the penalty for our sin. He was a propitiation for our sin, the scripture says, meaning that he absorbed the punishment, the penalty of sin so that we might have life, forgiveness, and be reconciled to the Father. He became our substitute. The woman's sin was not taken lightly. She was justified because she trusted in Christ. So how do we deal with guilt, friends? We are guilty because we've sinned against the holy God. It means we don't look on the inside to deal with our guilt. We look to Jesus. We don't, behavior. We don't misuse Scripture to justify bad behavior. We 
only way that, deal, that guilt can be dealt with is by faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Him, you're justified before a holy God. Your sin accredited to Him and His righteousness accredited to you. Now, does this mean, this is very important, does this mean we just go on sinning? It's like, well, I'm justified. I'll just do what I want. I'll continue having sex outside of marriage. I'll continue lying. I'll, I'll continue uh, cheating and, and stealing and, and being vulgar. It's like, no way. Look at the last verse, verse 11. What's Jesus say? He says, you're not condemned. Go and sin no more. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. God desires for us, church, to walk in holiness. If you and I appreciate what he has done at Calvary, how could we not serve him? Bow down to him as Lord and do all that we can to follow him. If you're here and you're not a, a true Christian, I want to invite you today to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. I invite you to come as we sing in just a moment. I'd love to pray with you if that's you. Some of you Christians, I, I know from talking to you, even though you've confessed your sins, you are still bearing kind of a weight of guilt for things that you've done. How do you deal with that? Again, you don't look within. You look to Jesus. And you realize what is true of Jesus. If you're a true Christian, what's true of Jesus is true of you. God the Father sees you in his righteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just. You see that? To forgive us, and watch this, not just forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no better feeling than to be cleansed. Celebrate your justification. Today your garments that are stained with sin can be washed whiter than snow. We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood loose all their guilty stains. Would you come to Jesus? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.